Hey folks, welcome to the Green Root Podcast. I am your host, Josh Schlossberg. And for this episode, we have Dr. Michael W. Miller. He is a wildlife veterinarian with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, CPW. He is a bit of an expert on chronic wasting disease and stuff to do with mountain lion predation. And uh, really glad to have you on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. So this issue of chronic wasting disease, I've been following this for many years because in my journalism, I've written a lot about viruses and bacteria. And then now we have this weird prion stuff. So what is chronic wasting disease? Who and what is it affecting? And why should we be concerned? Sure. Um, chronic wasting disease is one of a, a group of diseases, thankfully kind of a small, small group of of, of diseases that are caused by these, these things called prions. And, and as best science understands it, these are, are self-propagating uh, entities that are, um, they're not any of those other things that you listed off. They're not viruses, they're not bacteria, they're not you know, larger uh, cellular or multicellular agents. They're actually uh, misfolded protein molecules. And somehow, biochemically, they are able to uh, conscript uh, the, the, the similar, they're identically, chemically identical protein molecules in, in cells that they come in contact with and convert them to their own misshapen and, and fairly inelastic form. And, and as this sort of cascade of events occurs within an animal's system, eventually enough of of this material builds up that it starts to, to uh, interfere with the animal's ability to, to function. And so they're, they're a, a, a different class of, of disease agent. Um, in my mind, maybe somewhere between a toxin, which is completely inert and a more conventional pathogen uh, like a virus or bacteria or something larger that has at least some amount of nucleic acid that that codes for the things that that cause it to behave the way it does. These things are just just protein-based agents, but they are able to to multiply or at least propagate themselves in a in a host system. Right. Yeah. That's that's pretty horrifying. So other versions of that that we've heard of in the past, mad cow disease. Right. That's a prion. Yeah, bovine. Yeah. Bovine spongiform encephalopathy, which is is the harder and and more tongue-tying. <laughs> Uh, term uh, BSE, uh, and, and I'll, I'll refer to it as BSE, so I don't have to repeat the other one because I got it right the first time. But uh, BSE, there's a, uh, and, and that thankfully has become a very, very rare disease. Um, that one was not a, an infectious disease per se, so it was transmissible, but only when cattle and other species were being fed uh, tissues from cattle that had already become infected. And so the fix on that one was fairly easy. Stop feeding infected cattle to other things and, and the disease more or less goes away. Um, there are uh, some other what are called sporadic uh, prion diseases in, in humans, for example, several of those. Um, and then there are, um, there are two in, truly infectious prion diseases that we know of. Uh, one of those is chronic wasting disease, and the other is a disease of, of sheep and, and goats called scrapie. And scrapie's actually been recognized for a long time. Uh, there's there's older, you know, writings about that that go into the uh, into the you know early 1700s, maybe in the late 1600s. So it's it's at an in, as an entity, it's been described and known for a long time. Obviously, it wasn't understood to be a prion disease until fairly recently. But that's that's pretty much it. There, so again, thankfully, it's a fairly small group of of diseases, and and uh, only a couple of them are are infectious, and so behave from a you know a population standpoint similar to what other you know more conventional bacteria and viruses behave like. Sure. So, chronic wasting disease or CWD, not to be confused with CPW, Colorado Parks and Wildlife. <laughs> yeah, please don't. Yeah. A lot of acronyms going on here. Yeah. So, chronic wasting disease affects cervids, which not COVID, 
cervids, yeah. all these words are all blending together. Yeah. It's a big nightmare. So cervids, deer, elk, and moose, those are the critters that are affected entirely, right? No other critters are affected by- Well, in, in Colorado, that's that's true. Um, in, in other places, um, caribou slash reindeer, which are the same species, just with different names on different continents. Um, there have been cases in, in Norway, uh, very recently and very well publicized cases in, um, in some of their reindeer herds or wild reindeer herds. Um, the Europeans have also reported um, at least a small number of cases and, and the South Koreans have too in, in red deer, which are, are similar to, uh, to elk, very, you know, very closely related taxonomically. Um, and, um, and then I believe, what is it? Saika deer, I believe is the other species over in, in, um, Korea that was, um, was at least a few cases have been described. So again, all of these are species in the deer family. Um, so they're all relatively closely related. Uh, but it, and, and in, in North America, certainly in, certainly in the wild, the vast majority of cases have been in mule deer and white-tailed deer and, and then elk. And then it's here in Colorado and pretty much elsewhere, as far as I know, it's a very rare disease, but not unheard of in moose. Um, we don't have or haven't seen any cases in wild caribou in North America, uh, but, you know, they would be regarded, I think, as susceptible should it make its way into some of those ranges. What about pronghorn? Um, things, so pronghorn are in the family Antilocapridae, uh, which is a different taxonomic group. Um, no cases in pronghorn. Similarly, no cases in bighorn sheep um, okay. or, or mountain goats um, and, and no evidence of spillover into uh, domestic species in the in the family bovidae, which would also be where the the uh, the bighorn sheep and the mountain goats fall, so cattle and and domestic sheep and goats, um, the um, and and then species like like horses and uh, and camelids, the alpacas, llamas, uh, don't really seem to be susceptible to any of the prion diseases, or at least mm -hmm. they haven't been described in in any of those species. Right. So. Well, that's you think about all the species out there, especially all the mammalian species. It's a, it's a remarkably short, short list. And then um, the the bovine spongiform encephalopathy agent, so the prion strain, which is somewhat unique and 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 distinguishable from chronic wasting disease and scrapie. Um, the the BSE prion is is probably the most promiscuous of, of the strains that's been described in that it um, not only infected cattle, but did spill over from cattle into, um, into domestic cats and non-domestic cats in some of the zoological collections in the United Kingdom. And then that's also the, the animal uh, prion agent that, that did regrettably spill into uh, uh, a few people relatively few given the amount of exposure, but nonetheless, you know, a tragic number of, of human cases of, of, of BSE in the United Kingdom and European countries. And that's called variant Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease. So just to completely kind of cloud all of the terminology and get it all out there. <laughs> yeah, got to put it out there. So yeah. what does this do? What does chronic wasting de disease do to the deer, the elk, sometimes the moose and the reindeer? Sure. So, so it gets into their system, uh, probably from oral exposure, either you know directly by interacting with another infected animal or, or the prions do persist for a while in the environment. And so even, you know, a susceptible animal that comes into a, an area where uh, an infected animal has been and has been depositing prions can, can maybe become infected. Um, prion gets into the system and it initially uh, moves into and, and starts to propagate itself in the, some of the organs of the, the immune system, the lymphatic system, so the tonsils, and then some of the, the lymph nodes that, um, that are associated with the head and the and the gastrointestinal tract, um, and it it propagates there for a while and really doesn't 
seem to do anything visibly to the animal other than just become more abundant. Um, from there, eventually, it makes its way uh, into the nervous system. And that's where uh, things start to, to become problematic for the infected animal. So the, the, the prions move probably up some of the long uh, fibers of, of nerves into the spinal cord and into the, into the brainstem and start to propagate there as well. And as that happens, um, we start to see microscopically evidence of, of, um, of, of damage to the, to the brain tissue in some fairly specific places early on, and then it becomes more widespread as time goes. And, and as that damage accumulates, the, the outward signs or, or symptoms, I guess more people would be familiar with, but, but the, the outward appearance of, of chronic wasting disease starts to, to come on. And you know, initially, um, the effects are pretty subtle. The animals just don't behave like themselves, which is easier to to sort of appreciate in an animal that, you know, a captive animal that you kind of know its individual personality, but they're, they're just not quite the same, a little more dull, a little less responsive. Um, sometimes they'll, they'll actually have slight changes in behavior that then become pronounced more so over time. So an animal that's fairly been fairly tame all of its life will suddenly, you know, not really appreciate people are being handled. Uh, an animal that maybe was, was a little more on the wild side might become fairly tolerant of, of you know, human presence. Um, and then as, as, as farther damage accrues, the animals start having, having trouble moving, uh, their coordination becomes affected, their uh, ability to, to swallow and kind of coordinate chewing and swallowing um, gets compromised. And as those things start to to add up, and, and as the as the, the problems accumulate, eventually uh, the animals do uh, get get sick enough that they die. Um, either they uh, inadvertently inhale some of the the rumen fluid that they normally regurgitate and rechew, or they um, get too cold or too hot when the weather uh, and temperatures uh, change. They get too wet when it when it rains or snows. Um, they, you know, walk out into traffic uh, when they shouldn't. They might walk out in front of a, of a, you know, a hunter's gun or, or bow and arrow uh, when they're just not quite paying enough attention. Or they might get killed by a, a lion or, or some other predator because, uh, again, they're not maybe paying quite as much attention as they should. Um, and all of that unfolds over the course of maybe on the short end, a couple of years after they're infected, and probably on the longer end with the, the more uh, genetically vulnerable of the, of the individuals within a species, you know, maybe on the outside three years. So, so animals that are infected live for quite a while, but they do die and they, and they don't live as long as, um, as they would if they hadn't become infected. What's the typical lifespan of say a mule deer? Yeah, you know, a female mule deer in an unhunted area ought to live, you know, six, seven, maybe eight years, uh, even longer. Uh, males are a little bit more short-lived, um, but uh, they, you know, they live for quite a while. And it, uh, and so if if a, a you know a deer gets infected at a relatively young age, at you know two, three years old, um, they may not live on average as 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 long as as you would expect them to. And as that, as that number of shorter lived animals starts to build up in a, in a, a deer herd or an elk herd, the, the overall ability of, of the, you know, the herd that they live in to, to you know, persist and, and do well and grow becomes compromised. And we're seeing, you know, have seen and, and continue to see evidence of that in, in some of our Western deer herds here in Colorado and, and in some of our, our, our neighboring states. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's, again, it's a subtle thing. The disease itself is pretty subtle. It's, it's difficult to recognize in the wild. Wild animals, just in general, uh, when they're not feeling well, they tend to really try to hide it. Mm -hmm. um, 
because it's certainly to their advantage not to stand out in the crowd um, from a you know a predator avoidance standpoint. And so they do tend to hide it uh, until they just really can't anymore. And and from what we've seen with wild animals, once they start showing obvious signs of of chronic wasting disease, they really don't last very long in the wild. And so you know a lot of people I think have a hard time appreciating how it could be as bad as it is. There's kind of a disconnect because we talk about percentages of, of, of animals that are infected. And yet, you know, people can live in some of these places where we have a lot of infected animals and, and maybe never see one or only rarely see one. But, but that's, um, you know, that's probably more the case that they're just not very long lived once they, they hit that, that, you know, height of, of, of clinical effects and um, and they're you know the earlier effects are pretty subtle unless you really know what to look for. Sure. Well, that's really helpful. Thank you. So you're saying that the disease itself doesn't really kill them; it's the behavior as the result of the disease or the lack of well, knowing I mean, how to survive. Or something. I, I guess that 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 in the wild that probably sets them up, but it it does kill them. So okay. it just it's sort of a matter of how they're going to die. But in the wild, they 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 probably tend to be killed before they ah. just lay down and die of, of clinical chronic wasting disease um, in in captivity. So when when we in the past had deer uh, in you know in, on research studies that are protected from predators, protected from vehicles, protected mm-hmm. from everything, and they still die. Um, they eventually either just lose condition or aspirate rumen contents and get pneumonia and die. Um, so yeah, they will die, and that, yeah. that's probably a good point to make because there, I, I know there have been individuals that that maybe don't believe this is as much of a problem as uh, as some of the rest of us that have worked on this, and and that's one of the hair splitting things I've I've heard uh, is uh, that that you know deer don't actually die of chronic wasting disease, but the the real point is there's two points one they don't recover from it so once to the best of our knowledge once a deer or an elk has been infected it it is going to die um, and it's going to die in a more rapid fashion than it would if it had remained uninfected Mm -hmm. and regardless of whether you know it's exposure or lack of nutrition or being killed by a predator or a car its life is still shorter than it would have been otherwise. And that's the really important thing. So it's sort of a hair splitting thing saying, oh, you know, this deer died of aspiration pneumonia. It didn't die of chronic wasting disease. Well, it wasn't going to get aspiration pneumonia if it didn't have chronic wasting disease. Aspiration pneumonia is, is just, you know, almost unheard of in, in healthy deer. So mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, so yeah, make, I, I, I think I, I don't mean to belabor that point, but that is, um, that's something that I've I've seen repeated, and it's um, it's a misleading kind of a thing. So sure, no, that's really helpful. Yeah, there does seem to be a whole disease denial thing going on in human society. Yeah, yeah that seems uh, to be kind of a common uh, right now. Uh, yeah, yeah, this is this is an interesting time to be in science and and to be in uh, in the realm of, of epidemiology and disease. On the one hand, you know, it, it's it's um, you know, I think. The, you know the, the the public all over the world is probably more turned into what tuned into what epidemic curves are and 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 how important it is to flatten the curve than they've ever been. So that's yeah. kind of cool. But yeah, on the other hand, you know, it uh, there's just an awful lot of parallels. So no, it's a real thing. Um, it you know it really does cause problems. At you know if if it's allowed to to run its course. And I mean, that's the other thing is I don't think we completely understand what, you know, run its course means. This is a problem that it, uh, in the wild at the, you know, at the scale of a, of a herd or a population or, or of deer and elk, this is something that unfolds over, over decades. Mm-hmm. So I, I've been working on this disease for the better part of my career. And I haven't seen one full epidemic cycle yet and that's Mm. 30 plus years so um so this you know and and unfortunately you know the attention span that we have for 
for focusing on on problems really doesn't always lend itself to dealing with these things that are are um, moving in very slow motion. So in yep. the short term, it doesn't look like anything's happening, but over the longer term, um, the problem does get get worse, uh, left sort of unattended. And as the as the you know similar to the way the damage in the animal accrues, mm-hmm. as damage to the infected herd accrues over time, uh, you know the 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 population has a harder time uh, maintaining itself and, and probably isn't going to be as quick to bounce back from some other insult like a severe winter if you're on the West Slope or a, or a drought or something along those lines. Right. So this is basically a slow burn situation. Very much so. Yeah. And and um, and again, that's that's part of what is it's, it's disarming in some ways because you, you know, you look at it and in the short term, it's like, ah, it's not really doing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you come back every once in a while and check, you, you have a better sense of what's going on. Sure. So as a man of science, you probably hate the term zombie deer disease, right? <laughs> yeah, that needs to probably be stricken from the, from the recording or at least uh, my emphatic uh, uh, disaffection for that term needs to stay in the recording. So, yeah, they, I won't. I won't title it "Zombie Deer." Anything? Yeah, How about I, that? We should talk about that though, because I think you know it. it for one thing, the, these animals are. I mean, if anything, it's just sort of sad, you know, to watch them. I mean, they just, you know, they're not wandering around like you know vicious things. They just clearly <laughs> don't feel good, and they don't know exactly what's going on. And, and um, having watched a number of them over the years, it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, demeaning in some respects yeah. to, to coin that term. I, I understand. I actually know the, the scientist that, that originally coined that, and he did it trying to get his students to, to be interested in it, which is also sort of a sad testament. That, <laughs> That's the kind of thing that it takes to get students to pay whatever attention. works, right? Whatever. Well, I, I guess, but I don't know. It's, it's so yeah, it's they're not it's, rabid zombies, and they're it's no. that they're stumbling around listlessly, not really self-aware kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, if 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 zombies in you know cult fiction did what um, what wasting disease deer do, there wouldn't be people lining up to watch the shows <laughs> it right. been a very short series well these uh, are vegetarian <laughs> zombies so we're safe <laughs> but they're really not very interesting I mean, they're not very exciting you know they, they don't <laughs> you know so yeah i think i think people would be have been pretty bored with the um, uh, all the, the the movies and 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 shows on on zombies if if zombies behave like deer with wasting disease you know? yeah so the prevalence of this i see in a this is a chronic wasting disease document from Colorado Parks and Wildlife from February 2018. And it says here, several Colorado deer herds, infection rates among harvested as in hunted bucks now exceed 10%. So in some of them. So would you say that's probably not accurate across the board, but that's not an unusual percentage? Uh, There's actually places now where um, you and two friends go and, and shoot bucks in a unit and one of the three of you will have killed an infected buck. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It's gotten so, worse. Clearly. Yeah. Well, and, and again, it, 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 it hasn't gotten worse rapidly. It's just that we've now got gotten data from some other areas mm-hmm. over the last five, uh, four years, I guess, this is the fourth year we've, we being Colorado parks and wildlife has, mm-hmm. has, undertaken systematically getting a, a handle on on the status of chronic wasting disease in all of our deer herds in the state uh, this year so in 2020 the hunting seasons that are going on you know, there's not a season going on right today when we're talking but there'll be another one starting tomorrow but mm. the seasons this year um, will close out our our state well hopefully it'll close out our our statewide survey so by the end of of, of the 2020 hunting seasons, we should have a, a pretty decent idea of, of whether there's severe, serious, you know, relatively high prevalence problems with chronic wasting disease 
in any of our deer herds in the southwestern southern part of the state mm -hmm. and we'll also have a good handle on what prevalence is so prevalence being the percent of, of the sampled animals that are infected when we're throwing around that that term uh, we'll have a good idea of what prevalence is and so this this 30 plus percent number that i just tossed out is actually from some of the areas that we surveyed in 2019 uh, on the eastern plains and um, if you if anybody's interested in all the numbers if they go to the colorado parks and wildlife website um, there's a pretty good table and map that, that sort of shows the relative distribution of the disease and, and how bad it is and we provide that in part to let keep people keep track and in in part so that when hunters are planning their hunts they know um, kind of what they're signing on for in terms of, of prevalence in, in a, a given area. Sure, that's really important to know. So I haven't done much research on this since about 2018. So I had written a couple pieces. I wrote one for The Ecologist and then for Enviro News. But my info is that they think this was first discovered, at least in Colorado in 1967 in captive mule deer is that still that's where it was wisdom? first i mean that's where it was first recognized so the syndrome mm -hmm. um was and the, and the term chronic wasting was was literally what the scientists that were working with these deer at the time were seeing they were just seeing these deer that that wasted away for no apparent reason and mm -hmm. so yes that, that's true whether you know whether those cases that they recognized were truly the first cases is mm -hmm is one of those chicken and egg things that we're never gonna gonna have the answer on. Um, like we were talking earlier, it would be far easier to recognize a syndrome like this in animals that you see and work with every day and that are protected from predators and fed, you know, as much as they want to eat in a day within reason. And, and, and so, yes, it was, it was recognized at, uh, at a, a university facility um, and then uh, subsequently was seen, and not long after that, in uh, in the big scheme of things, in the wild. Um, so, how bad is this likely to get? And I guess it well, on a local scale, it can get pretty bad. Mm -hmm. um, so there are herds up in Wyoming where. Um, Somewhere around every, you know, I mean, four out of every 10 bucks that are harvested, five, you know, one out of every two are infected. Mm -hmm. And and the way it's an interesting pattern, there aren't too many constants in biology, as you're probably aware. Uh, but one of them that's that's remarkably robust is is the the two to one relationship between um, the prevalence that we see in male deer and female deer. So, so males tend to have about twice the, the rate of or prevalence of infection and incidence of infection as, um, as females in the same area. Hmm. So if, if 20% of the, of the bucks in an area are, um, are infected, it's a pretty good wager, wager that around 10% of the of the does in that same area are going to be infected. So in places where where prevalence gets really high like that, you have a high proportion of the does that are getting sick and and dying every year, and and a herd in that state is you know they they may not vanish, but they're they're not going to do very well. I mean they're going to hold on. Um, they're going to be you know much less abundant than they would have been in the absence of the disease. Uh, they may not do very well if there's a drought or something like that. They probably won't support as much hunting pressure um, as, as a, an otherwise healthy herd. And so that's, you know, that's as far as we know on the, on the kind of the extreme end so far. But again, you know, there's no telling kind of what the end game is going to be because I don't think we've really seen what that is any place. Uh, that said, it, it seems there's a growing you know, body of evidence uh, from field observations in in Colorado and, and and elsewhere now that that there are some things that we can do to um, to keep the disease in check, and um, and so uh, we 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 can't 
probably get rid of it once it gets established in an area. But there's a lot of diseases that we deal with that we can't get rid of, but we can, you know, control in a way that they're at least, you know, just sort of part of the background and not really causing huge problems. And I think wasting disease is, is in that realm from, from everything we've seen. Uh, so if, if we, you know, if we can figure out how to, how to manage the disease, pay attention to it, you know, get in there before it gets out of control and, and, and do some, some things to try to keep, um, keep prevalence from getting super high, uh, then I think, you know, we can, we can manage it. Deer herds can survive with, with chronic wasting disease if, if it is sufficiently rare. And, um, and that's hopefully in the long term where we're headed with this. So, you know, somewhere between uh, gloom and doom and, and just don't worry about it, as with so many things in life, that's where we need to be. Uh, try to keep it in, in sort of a, a modest level. I mean, we, it would be nice to keep it out of places that it doesn't already occur if we can do that. But, um, but certainly just having it in an area isn't the absolute end of things. It just requires us to pay more attention to those herds and, and maybe manage them a little bit more carefully than we, than we would otherwise. For sure. And in a minute, I want to talk to you a little bit about how mountain lions might tie into things based on your studies. But before going there, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife, that February 2018 document, does say minimizing human exposure to CWD seems prudent, although exposure has thus far not been associated with cases of prion disease in humans. Public health officials advise against consuming meat or any other tissues from animals known to be infected. General rule, hunters should avoid handling carcasses of animals that do not appear to be healthy and report such cases to CPW. So there have not been any cases of transmission to humans, but we're worried that there might be. Well, we being the public health entities that we defer to, I mean, we, mm -hmm. we, our responsibility statutorily and professionally is for wildlife health. Right. And, and so we on, on public health matters, whether it be chronic wasting disease or, or anything else, quite honestly, we, we defer those things to, to public health authorities because that's their professional responsibility. And I think a lot of this is based on, well, I, I know a lot of it is based on an abundance of, of caution uh, based on the experiences that we were talking about earlier with bovine spongiform encephalopathy spilling over into, into humans. Um, you know, the, the recommendation to not, um, not handle or consume wildlife that, that appears to be unhealthy, that transcends deer and elk. I mean, we say the same thing about rabbits. That, that statement is actually in the small game brochure. It's in our waterfowl brochure. Um, so it's just generally not a good idea to eat an animal that, that um, looks like it might have been sick. Um, so that, that, that is, that's just common sense. Uh, but in terms of the prion diseases, uh, the, the public health recommendations, and I think the you know, the, the societal preference is that we not, um, we not run the risk, even though it might be a, an incredibly small risk, we not run the risk of, of exposing people to, um, to any of the prion diseases, not just chronic wasting disease, but scrapie um, or, or, or anything else that might, might come along. And, and so that, you know, that makes sense. And that's another reason, quite honestly, to try to keep the, uh, the disease as rare as we can in, in the wild so that the odds of somebody shooting and, and taking home an infected animal stay pretty small. Right. So back in 2018, when I was doing research on this and things might've changed since then, but I did find a study by Canadian and German scientists. They found that the the uh, prion of CWD was transmitted to, it was a macaque monkey. Now they mm -hmm. literally injected it into its brain, I believe. So that's way different than any other form of transmission, but it shows that it's possible for primates. And I believe macaques are the closest to humans that we currently do testing with because we don't do with chimps anymore. 
So do you have concerns about that or what do you think about that? Well, that, that study, um, yeah, the, the preliminary results of that study were reported. There've actually been two macaque studies, one reported by the Canadian and German scientists and another one re- reported by the scientists at the National Institutes of Health, uh, Rocky Mountain Laboratory up in Hamilton, Montana. Hmm. And, and the, the Montana study actually was not able to to infect macaques, hmm. so uh, you know. But and and actually, primate uh, macaques aren't the first uh, primate to have been infected experimentally. Um, uh, spider monkeys were infected. In fact, that was some some of the earlier work on on uh, primates was was done with chronic wasting disease a number of years ago now. Hmm. Um, and, and so we've, we've known for quite some time that at least some of the primate species might be susceptible experimentally. Um, again, I, I mean, I, I think it, it, it follows uh, the, you know, the recommendations that, that it's, it's probably a low risk, um, but it may not be an absolute zero risk. So yeah. if you look at, at the bovine spongiform encephalopathy experience in the United Kingdom, um, there were, uh, I think the last I saw, it was over 200 cases, but the number of cases um, really hasn't changed much at all in, in, in quite some time. So at the height of, the, of the, the BSC epidemic in cattle, there was obviously a fair bit of human exposure. Right. Um, but, but there were probably millions of people potentially exposed to the BSC agent. And out of those um, you had a few hundred cases, and again, not to diminish the the tragedy of any one of those cases, let alone mm. a couple hundred of them. But but the point being that that um, if there had only been a small number of people exposed, there might have never been a case. And so right. the strategy moving forward is to just try to keep the exposure to a minimum, and then regardless of what the, the, the risk is, if, if there's not much exposure, then, then all the better. Does that make it, sense? It uh, does. Absolutely. Yeah. It's pretty much, yeah. The concept of better safe than sorry. Right. Yeah, and that's yeah. uh, the, the precautionary principle. It's what we are trying to do sometimes with COVID. Uh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And the, 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 the experience with BSE um, was, Quite honestly, I, from the reading that I've done, you know, it was it was a, a pretty significant um, crush of of, uh, of public uh, respect for for the government because they they had essentially for for a number of years, over the better part of a decade, had dismissed the possibility of there being any risk at all, based on what was known at the time. And, and then, you know, lo and behold, they were mistaken on that. And in general, the, you know, the, the body of scientists that work on these diseases, I think vowed at the time to just, you know, never, never let that happen again. And certainly that's mm-hmm. the public health perspective. And I think, you know, understandably so that, that you know, we, we should just never say never uh, is really right. what it comes down to. Yeah, anything can happen clearly, and that's I think what COVID is showing us. Maybe yeah. not anything, but things that are likely to happen, or that are possible to happen. We need to do some sort of prevention right. as and, we can. And and again, you know, it's it's just a matter of of, of minimizing the risk, mm-hmm. um, understanding that you know we might take that risk to zero, and there there are still cases of human prion disease. Um, the, the, the attack rate for, for what's called sporadic Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is the most common of the human prion diseases, mm-hmm. runs right around one per million. And, and that is a, is a worldwide rate. And, and, and so even in places like Australia and New Zealand, where they don't have any of the animal prion diseases. They don't have BSC, they don't have scrapie, they don't have chronic wasting disease, and they still have human prion disease. So, so there is some base level risk from whatever 
exposure source of, of humans to contracting aprion disease. And, and we just, and actually the, the attack rate for, for BSC, as I recall, was, was about half that. So it was about one in 2 million. And, um, and the only reason it, it really got picked up is because of the, the, uh, the difference in the age presentation uh, it was affecting a much, much, much younger age class of, of, of humans in, in the UK. So uh, young adults, which, which rarely, rarely, rarely uh, develop sporadic Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Right. So, so again, to you know, mm -hmm. Sorry, can I keep going? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so to prevent the spread of CWD is CPW recommending, urging, or even requiring testing from hunting when the deer or cervids are hunted? Well, What's the situation so, yeah, we have a, and that's probably a good thing to visit about a little bit. We have a longstanding, um, I think it's a written policy, but at least it's certainly a practice of uh, providing uh, testing as a service to hunters. Mm -hmm. We don't actually do the tests ourselves. It's done at a at a university laboratory, but um, but we have a, a a pretty nice program that that uh, makes that testing service available to hunters for a, a nominal fee. Basically, it covers the laboratory uh, costs and a little bit of the other expenses. So that's something that's available statewide year in year out. Um, we do require hunters in some places in some years to submit heads, but that's only to help us get the sample sizes we need to get um, surveillance data and to get a handle on what prevalence is in a particular herd. And so if you look at our brochure for this year, there's a whole list of, uh, of game management units where we're requiring um, hunters, deer hunters to turn in, to turn in heads. That has nothing to do with public health, it has everything to do with those are the places that we've targeted this year for our, our uh, prevalence estimation. If you open up the brochure next year, if you look at last year's brochure, most of the herds will be different. And so it's on a rotating basis. So we, we have never and, and have no, um, no plan to the best of my knowledge, uh, you know, requ requirement for uh, hunters to turn in heads for testing as a matter of, of you know, a, a human health kind of a, of a thing. And, and one of the things that we in the laboratory uh, folks that do the testing will be really quick to say is that the, you know, the testing is pretty good at, at you know, detecting infected animals, but it's no test is perfect. And so uh, there, there probably is a subset of infected animals very early in the course of infection that that um, that can't be picked up just like you know people that are infected with the novel coronavirus in the first few days after they're infected will test negative yeah. even though they are infected in the case of wasting disease it's a it's a pretty small period relative to the overall course of disease and the reason they can't be picked up by the diagnostic test is because there's so little prion in the system that it's just eluding the, the, the sampling scheme. And so those, those animals, if they are infected, would be at even smaller risk just because there'd be very little uh, of the infectious agent anywhere in their, in their system. Sure. But so it's a good idea for hunters to get their kills tested though, right? Well, if, if, if that, I mean, it's, it's really a personal a really a personal choice thing. I mean, I, I know some folks that, that do that every year, um, either because they want to know or because somebody in their household uh, says you're not bringing that thing in here and, and, and unless we know that it's uninfected. There are other people that, um, that uh, I've talked to over the years that, that don't, don't want to know. There are people that turn in heads for testing and, and don't want to know the results. Mm. Uh, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's very much a, a, a personal thing. It really is. 
Sure, but it's a personal thing for sure. But at the same time, if there is a disease being spread, like we're hearing right now, a lot of folks are like, it's my personal decision whether or not I want to wear a mask or social distance. And it's like, well, yes and no, right? So that there yeah, is a little but, bit of responsibility. Yeah, but the difference there is that that um, with with coronavirus, you're responsible not you're, or being responsible or should be responsible not only for for your own health, but for the health of people that you interact with. Mm -hmm. And in the case of, of, of chronic wasting disease, it's, it's pretty much a, a dead end uh, in, okay. in species other than deer and elk. So, um, so, but, you know, again, it, 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 I think if, if, if somebody is, is concerned or is planning on sharing the carcass mm -hmm. and they have concerns or if the folks that they're, you know, sharing the thing with have concerns, then, then that's a service that's available and it's, it's a reasonable thing to do. Sure. But yeah, I see the difference. It's in this case, if you're a vector of it, you're only yes. going to, unless somebody else literally eats your brain, which we don't do anymore for the most part, and <laughs> yeah. it should yeah. be okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I actually sit on the governor's, uh, emergency expert epidemic response committee. And so, yeah, I don't want any part of this to, <laughs> to, to be constrained to saying that mask wearing is optional. It is absolutely not. Oh, it's sure. No, I, the simplest and, things that we can all do to, to help, uh, help get this under control. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it is important to realize the difference between these. So you're saying, yeah, it would the, be, the light, it would be the, nice if, if we had something as simple as, as mask wearing that we could uh, do with, with, you know, deer herds. Uh, we could put some masks on deer. Is that what you're suggesting? Well, yeah, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, we, you and I can go out to the field and I'll let you give that a try. <laughs> I have a couple deer who live right near my house. They tend to sleep right there. I can maybe sneak up on them when they're sleeping. You, you see how, yeah, give that a try and give me a call. Let me know how that works out. Having that, spent <laughs> a lot of time catching and handling deer, um, <laughs> They're they're usually pretty nonchalant right up until they realize that somebody's trying to put their hands on them, and then uh, yeah, they'll see a little different behavior. So. Leave that to the professionals, and I'm certainly <laughs> not going to do it with the elk herd that hangs out around my place. Yeah, um, the, the, yeah, the, the the deer. Although you know you can get you can get throttled pretty good by a deer, but um, oh yeah, but uh, but elk tend to be a little. Uh, uh, less quick to to uh to flee and 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 more happy to just you know turn around and stand their ground yep that's what happened recently in evergreen with the guy on the golf course so it is something oh, to be, yeah, that's right. be aware yeah. of give them their yeah. space that's for yeah. sure so this was all really helpful in regards to understanding chronic wasting disease and but one possibility for dealing with this. Now, I, I don't, I don't think that that is what your study is suggesting. So I will just put that on me. But you, you wrote a study. You were the lead author of a study in 2008, and probably some other studies as well. But lion, lions and prions and deer demise. So, can you talk a little bit about what that study discussed and how lions, mountain lions, play into this at all? Sure. And I just want to say, best title ever. Uh, at least yeah. of the things that I've written, I, I pretty we had good. A lot of fun. We had a lot of fun with that one, but pretty good. Yeah. So the 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 study, and actually, I'm sitting as as we're speaking, I'm sitting on on Table Mesa today, um, which is where that study took place. That's in Boulder. Uh, the, it's in Boulder, yeah, Southwest Boulder. So the 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 work was actually set up to try to answer the question at, at the time, which would, we started this back in 2005, I think. Um, was was whether we could actually see a difference in in survival in in deer in the wild uh, deer infected with wasting disease versus other deer right in the same herd that were not infected. Um, we knew that it it killed deer in in captivity, but you know in captive deer they're exposed probably more intensively than they that you would think that they would be in the wild and. And so they may develop the disease more rapidly and die more rapidly. And so there were there were some legitimate questions at the time. Again, some of it was deferral denial, like we had talked about before. But but uh, there was a question of of whether this was really, you know, a measurable uh, cause of 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 demise in in 
in deer. And, and so we set about to, to study that here at Table Mesa. Part of the reason we picked this area is, uh, well, one, because of a really good working relationship we had with the city of, and still have with the city of Boulder mm-hmm. and Boulder Open Space and Mountain Parks. And, uh, and also because this is an area where there were a fair number of deer and the deer weren't, um, weren't subject to at least human hunting. So it's an area, an open space and, and uh, you know, urban, suburban fringe, but, but uh, no, no sport hunting in this, in this area. And so it was a chance to look at, at both male and female deer uh, in the absence of, uh, of at least, you know, human predation. Now, obviously, uh, the title sort of gives it away that there were, was another source of predation here, and that was, was mountain lions. So, the, you know, the upshot of the study um, was that, that, in fact, as uh, would have been expected, the deer that, uh, that were infected with chronic wasting disease only lived uh, about two years longer after we, so they died within a couple of years of the time we, we sampled them and, and found them to be infected on average. Uh, the deer that were not infected lived, uh, I think around, we estimated around five, six years more. Uh, we didn't follow them all that, that time, but they, you know, most of our uninfected deer survived to the end of the study and we took the collars off and they went on their, their way. Um, so the deer died and what we, what we saw though, is that, that a, a, a fairly large portion of the sick deer uh, were, were being killed by mountain lions. So rather than finding a deer, you know, curled up and dead under a, under a bush, um, they were being killed by mountain lions. Um, and maybe at a, at a somewhat, you know, earlier point in the course of disease than they, they would have died otherwise. Because what, what happened, it wasn't a planned thing, but um, I don't know how much you remember of, you know, the events of the day at the time, but uh, uh, a young uh, boy was was uh, attacked on, on Flagstaff Mountain, which is just on the northwest uh, corner of, of our, our study area, uh, about midway, summer midway through that, that study. And, and as a consequence of that, uh, our agency uh, took a somewhat dim view of having mountain lions right on the, uh, the urban fringe here in that area for a few years. So the number of lions actually dropped pretty dramatically right about halfway through our, our study, which is, is not anything that one hopes for when one is running a field study. They dropped because they were, they were killed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there weren't that many lions in the area, but one entire family group was, was in all likelihood taken out and a couple mm-hmm. of other individuals. And, and for an area the size of, of this, that was pretty much it. Mm-hmm. So what we saw then was that the, the, you know, the deer continued to die, the ones that were infected with wasting disease, uh, but, but basically did develop sort of end-stage clinical disease, and we would find them, them dead with maybe a little bit of evidence of coyote scavenging, but, mm-hmm. but not much else. And so um, the, what we did see, though, was that the, the deer that were infected with wasting disease were about four times more likely to be killed by lions than the uninfected deer. Um, and again, that goes back to what we were talking about way earlier on, the fact that these animals in later stages of the disease are probably more vulnerable to predation because they are um, not as wary. They do kind of stand out in a, in a crowd, you know, something happens and if they're in a herd, the, the group of deer will look toward the, the source of disturbance and you'll have one animal that's sort of staring around you know, in a different direction or not really paying attention. And those are the kinds of things that, that, that predators cue on. Uh, with an ambush predator like a, like a mountain lion, um, probably just the lack of wariness or maybe these deer not moving around quite as much would, would set them up for, um, for that, that source of, of demise. Uh, but at the same time, right around that same time, uh, a, a graduate student colleague, uh, Caroline Crum had a, a companion study going on, uh, much more difficult study to do because it involved 
uh, capturing mountain lions, putting radio collars on them with what at the time was an emergent uh, technology called global positioning system uh, coordination, which we all now know as GPS. Uh, it was some of the first collars that came out that were able to fix locations in, in the field. Anyway, um, Caroline would go in and catch these, these mountain lions, uh, mark them, follow them, and locate kills that they had made, collect samples to look for chronic wasting disease. And we compared the prevalence of, of uh, wasting disease among the deer killed by lions with the prevalence of wasting disease killed by hunters in the same vicinity. So not in exactly the same spot, but out of you know more or less the same geographic area. And Caroline's study showed in a complementary way that not only were, were the, the lions on Table Mesa uh, or the, the, the infected deer on Table Mesa were more vulnerable to lion predation, but in fact, the, the, the lions in the study area, which overlapped with Table Mesa, but included much of the Northern Front Range, the lions actually were selecting for infected deer. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, that, that does uh, sort of emphasize the point that, that predators um, at least with this particular disease, uh, might be a uh, an asset, I guess, or at least not a not a detriment to trying to uh, to control the disease. Now that you know that being said, uh, if you go back and look at the at the Table Mesa paper, uh, prevalence was really high at, at Table Mesa. So so the, that level of lion predation that was going on down here was not anywhere near enough to to keep the disease um, under the five percent threshold that we would like to see it stay at from a management standpoint but right. but certainly it at least suggests that that predators could could be part of a a uh, a, a control or disease suppression mechanism yeah see to me that's really fascinating and, and super important so theoretically if there were more mountain lions around they would be helping more with reducing the spread of CWD. Is that a feasible thing well, to say? Well, yeah, I mean, I, the, I don't know. I mean, part of it is that that mountain lions will only, you know, tolerate so much of one another, mm -hmm. and and so what we don't know, and and this is something that that uh, you know, talking to somebody who understands mountain lion ecology would be you know yeah. really beneficial. Uh, I, I don't know whether lions would ever be you know of sufficient density in a place like table mesa once prevalence gets as high as it is i don't i don't know that that you could have enough lions to keep you know the disease under wraps now in a place where the disease first got introduced and where it was pretty rare would um, you know would they maybe be able to help keep it down to a dull roar i think that would be a, a more um, a more likely possibility sure. um, and, and it's it's something that's worth uh, you know worth continuing to look at and, and and think about. And so it's possible that also bears and even wolves. And now that Colorado has passed a wolf reintroduction act, aside from the one or two wolves that they think might already be lurking around, or maybe more than that, is it feasible that then bears and wolves would be picking up on the same thing? Well, and again, I you know I'm not a bear ecologist, but from sure. what I understand about bear foraging strategy bears killing adult at least black bears the bears we have here in colorado killing adult deer uh you know by the time they would get to a point where um where they would be killing an infected deer that deer was probably just about to die anyway I mean, they would mm -hmm. probably be more likely to scavenge a, a, a deer that died of wasting disease and actually kill one outright Right. As, as I understand, yeah. you know, their, their foraging strategy. And now that being said, you know, them consuming uh, that carcass might actually help reduce the amount of, of infectious prion material that ends up in the environment. Mm -hmm. um, so that might not be a bad thing, but, but what you really need to, to bring the a disease like this under control is that you, you have to shorten the lifespan of an infected animal um, to the point where 
it can't create a new infection before it dies. Yeah. If that makes sense, which is okay. really hard so. To so do. if so, it, yeah. So if you have an animal that that is has already been shedding prions for eighteen months, and then something kills it two weeks before it's going to die anyway, that's not going to have the same mm -hmm. effect on reducing transmission as if that animal had been, you know, noticed and killed twelve months earlier. Or, yeah. or 16 months earlier. Does that make sense? Of course, yeah. So, so, um, so that's where, you know, lions are, are probably not uh, as, I mean, once, once they learn to, to identify infected animals, if there's enough of them in an area, uh, then they might, you know, be pretty good at picking them off a little bit earlier than the disease would, you know, of its own accord, but, but, but probably not as much just by virtue of the way they hunt. You mentioned wolves and, and coyotes would, if they're hunting in, in groups, would fit into this bill mm. a little bit more. They, they tend to be, again, I'm not a, not a painted ecologist. Uh, we, we presumably will have some of those in Colorado before long, but, uh, but uh, you, know, you might want to talk to somebody who mm -hmm. has studied you know, wolf predation strategies, but I understand them to be uh, more of what's termed a coursing predator. So uh, uh, you know, a predator that is constantly testing the herd and, and looking for, you know, the most obvious weakness, a limp, you know, a, a cough, something that might signal that that animal might be a little easier to pick off than, than everybody else standing near it. So if, if you have a predator that is able to discern that deer that isn't quite paying attention as well as, as the, its neighbors or that deer that stumbles just a little bit when it runs or it's holding its head in a slightly different manner a predator like that might uh, might be able to do more in terms of taking animals out earlier in the course of disease sure again yeah. they you know they have to be showing some sign right <clears throat> excuse me and there is a period of time that 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 infected deer uh, shed these infectious prions before they're showing any signs. And so mm -hmm. they're going to be able to transmit for a while before, before they're noticeable to even the most discerning, you know, predator or human. But, but again, something that's looking for, for that day in, day out might, uh, might be uh, more effective than something that's waiting for an animal, you know, to, to uh, just not be paying attention in an ambush type setting. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense because, of course, it's, the spread is animal to animal, and then it's through the vegetation. And then there were even studies I saw about salt licks, where all the critters in the area, all the deer in the area, go to it to lick the salt, and that's just like right, vector yeah. central salt, yeah. uh, artificial feed. I mean, we had right. we had laws in place in Colorado making it Ill <clears throat> illegal to feed deer and other big game species artificially long before we recognized chronic wasting disease was a problem, but, but that's just another good reason to have those laws in place. Uh, anything like that that draws animals into the same place day in, day out, and especially something that draws animals from different social groups that might not otherwise overlap and not otherwise mix is, is a good way to make this problem worse. Yeah. And, and as you pointed out, because the prions can uh, be deposited in the environment and can persist for, for quite a while, uh, you know, if you have a spot on the map where you have lots of animals coming and going, that's a good, uh, a good mechanism for, for transmitting a disease like this. Sure, sure. And uh, I'll let you go in a minute, but I do have one last question. So sure. if, if, Lions and potentially bears, we don't know, maybe wolves, stuff like that. But let's just talk about lions right now. If they're a positive thing potentially for curbing the spread or slowing the spread of chronic wasting disease, uh, why is Colorado Parks and Wildlife killing off uh, so many lions? Well, I, I get it. And I'm, I'm not the guy that, uh, that manages our lion management plan that would be mark the arrow would probably be the first one to visit about that mm -hmm. I mean, we've had lion hunting in colorado uh for quite some time i i 
to the best of my knowledge, we're not killing off all the lions. Uh, we right. do hunt some. Right. Um, I and and I I would honestly defer to Mark on okay. our, or some of our our regional biologists on on specific lion quotas in areas where we have chronic wasting disease. I you know I'd also be quick to point out that there's a lot of of Colorado where where chronic wasting disease is is maybe there but not prevalent or mm-hmm. to the best of our knowledge where it doesn't occur. And so I, I think, you know, the, the question, you know, I, I think part of the answer to that question would be to look pretty closely at, at precisely what we're doing with lions in areas where uh, chronic wasting disease is quite prevalent. Um, you know, we also have, I mean, some of the highest prevalence areas uh, in the state um, are east of the interstate where we really don't have lions to I mean, we've never had lions out there. So um, so it, it can get bad in the complete absence of lion hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I, uh, yeah, I, I hate to duck on something like that, but I honestly, I don't <laughs> know a- what our specific quotas are in the areas where we have high chronic waste disease prevalence. And so I don't feel like I could give an intelligence. No, answer. that's, and that's fine. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but sure. it's just something no, that fine. certainly needs to be brought yeah, into no, the conversation. I, I mean, I, I think as one of the things that you'll start to see after the uh, Parks and Wildlife Commission adopted the chronic waste and disease response plan uh, in early 2019, I believe it was, and that's also on the Colorado Parks and Wildlife website, uh, you're now starting to see the deer herd management plans reflect um, per commission expectation, reflect what's being done in those areas to address chronic wasting disease. We have a 5% uh, threshold for compelling our managers to, to take that into consideration. Mm-hmm. And, and so some of the new herd management plans actually might, might have the answer to your, to your question. Uh, you could look at the White River plan, which is in draft right now. That would actually be a pretty good one to look at because okay. that's an area where wasting disease prevalence is quite above a ways above the threshold, and I know uh, there are some measures in there specifically related to chronic wasting disease, but I honestly don't know what was said about, I don't remember what was said about uh, mountain lion uh, harvest in there, and so that would be a, a good question to, to take a look at that, and maybe that'll give us some answers. Okay, well, I certainly will. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this really important issue, chronic wasting disease.